recent changes in the Middle East signal peace? You've read where one Arab country after another is signing historic peace, trade, investment, and tourism deals with Israel. But at the same time, we've got Russia, Iran, and Turkey all kind of forming this dangerous alliance. Where is it all heading? That's our focus in just a few minutes as we sit down with New York Times bestselling author Joel Rosenberg. From Moody Radio, it's The Land and the Book with author, Old Testament scholar, and Israel expert, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, always curious about what's going on in the Middle East. Good to connect, Charlie, as we get set to talk about some important current event stories. Uh, John, it's always good to sit down and talk with you, and you're right, there's a lot happening in the Middle East. With story one, we'll begin. It's not a question of if there will be another war between Israel and her neighbors, but when it will take place. Where do Israel's military planners think the next war might be fought? You know, they scratch their head on this a lot, and they do a lot of uh, war gaming, trying to make sure they, they know so they're prepared. But though there's been a lot of talk about Israel attacking Iran's nuclear facilities, it actually seems that that's unlikely to happen, at least in the near future. Israel's current government seems reluctant to launch that attack without U.S. permission. And right now, our government is still committed to rejoining the nuclear agreement with Iran. So Israel will continue attacking Iran's convoys and storehouses in Syria. Uh, that's going to be a given for the near term. Now, a war with Hezbollah is not out of the question. Certainly, Israel keeps an eye on what's happening in southern Lebanon. But right now, that seems less likely since Hezbollah has its own struggles in Lebanon, which, of course, is imploding economically. A war between Hezbollah would hurt Israel, but it would also decimate Hezbollah and make them more vulnerable in Lebanon. Uh, so where else could Israel be watching for war? Well, another war with Hamas in Gaza is actually far more likely. Hamas hopes to replace the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank by positioning themselves as champions of the Palestinian people against Israel. The conflict with Hamas last May did set the group back. Now, Israel destroyed much of the tunnel infrastructure Hamas had spent years developing. Now, they still have rockets, but because of Iron Dome, less than 10% of those launched actually hit targets in Israel. Uh, the one wild card in the coming year might be the West Bank. Hamas has been pushing to increase its presence in the West Bank. They've also encouraged lone wolf attacks against Israelis. Israel and the Palestinian Authority are quietly cooperating to prevent such attacks and to root out Hamas cells. Now, hopefully, they'll continue to be successful. But as Palestinian Authority President Abbas grows older and as his government becomes less popular, Hamas and the West Bank remain the ticking time bomb. And a war with them is certainly not out of the question in the near term. Charlie, you referenced the war with Hamas last May, uh, and you've alluded to the fact that so many of those tunnels were ruined, uh, so many of the rockets shot down by Iron Dome. What then might uh, a war look like? You, you talked about lone wolf attacks, but that's not quite war status. What would we be expecting? Well, Hamas is going to keep trying to uh, send rockets against Israel, knowing that they won't be that successful. Uh, but in the meantime, they're pushing for uh, the presence in the West Bank. They would like to see elections in the West Bank because they believe they would win the elections against the Palestinian Authority. Uh, and uh, if that were to happen, Israel could be faced with another Gaza right in the West Bank. So I think Hamas's ultimate gain is to try and get the West Bank by prodding Israel and uh, attacking the ineffectiveness and corruption of the Palestinian Authority. Last question. Is there any scenario in which Hamas is simply wiped out, pretty much? 
No, because politically, Israel would not be allowed to do what it would take to go into Gaza and destroy the entire infrastructure of Hamas. Uh, the world would rise up in arms and require Israel to stop before they could actually accomplish what needs to be done. Well, speaking of war, the history of war in the Middle East has revolved around countries developing new offensive and defensive strategies, from walls and siege ramps to the Iron Dome and now drones. What have we learned from the past, and what should we be watching for now? You know, I think we need to start in the Bible, and it's a case where Solomon's words in Ecclesiastes ring true. There really is nothing new under the sun. You know, in history, cities were built on hills. They put walls around to keep out attackers, but then countries like the Assyrians developed new technology to overcome those defenses. Assyria became the master of using siege ramps and battering ramps to break down walls. In fact, archaeologists began studying the siege ramp at Lachish, uh, and they discovered that the Assyrians brought in three million stones to build that ramp. Now, as they reverse engineered how the ramp was constructed, they concluded that the stones were transported along a human chain, likely using prisoners of war, with each stone being passed from person to person. With four human chains working around the clock, the archaeologists determined that they could have moved 160,000 stones a day, and that entire ramp could have been built in just 25 days. Wow. Now, What's that have to do with us today, though, and, and uh, the question on, on offensive and defensive weapons? Well, Israel has its own version of a wall today. It's the Iron Dome system, and they build it to protect against missiles from Hezbollah and Hamas. Well, that was that modern version of a wall, but in response, Iran has invested large amounts of money now in drones capable of flying under and around these systems that Israel has to launch attacks. That's their new siege engine. Israel is now developing defensive weapons that can target drones. So the cycle is going to again be repeating itself, which takes me back to Ecclesiastes. There really is nothing new under the sun. That's Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Middle East scholar. I'm John Geiger. We're looking at current events in the Middle East. In the past, we've talked about archaeologists discovering ancient seal impressions. We're not talking about imitating animals. We're talking about Seals, as in a ring impression, pieces of clay stamped with a, a signet ring. But uh, now archaeologists have made a startling discovery on the backside of these tiny pieces of hardened clay. What exactly did they find? Yeah, you know, archaeologists have always focused on the front side of the clay seal. That You know, that's the side with the impression that was stamped on it from someone's signet ring. But then a group of archaeologists decided to turn the seals over and study the flip side. Now, I'm not sure if they expected to find anything significant, but it seems that they have. On the back side of these seals were impressions of whatever the seal had been stuck against. When the objects were destroyed, usually in a fire, uh, that impression got baked onto the back of the seal. Most of the clay seals showed that they were used to seal documents, probably made from papyrus. But the archaeologists also discovered that some of the seals contained impressions of woven fabric on the backside, suggesting those seals were used to seal bags filled with you know, gold or silver or other precious goods. Now, these include seal impressions they found in the Temple Mount during the uh, Temple Mount sifting project and seal impressions that were uncovered in the royal city uh, down uh, by the city of David. Now, the sealed cloth bags in these two areas might point to the presence of two different treasuries, uh, one where the temple tax was stored and one where the kingdom stored its tax revenue. 
Uh, the people who attach the lumps of clay to these strings tied around cloth bags as they probably measured out the amount of money they had uh, never imagined that this simple act would someday reveal so much about what was happening in Jerusalem at that time. Well, we've heard about the arrival of meatless meat, but now an Israeli company wants to introduce you to beeless honey. What's the uh, buzz on this latest innovation coming out of Amazing Israel? Yeah, this company is named BIO, that is B-E-E hyphen I-O, and they plan to begin industrial-scale production of honey in about two months. The company will produce its honey under laboratory conditions with natural nectar derived from plants using a secret nectar production technique. They claim to be able to produce a wide range of honey varieties. In fact, they're claiming they can do manuka honey, eucalyptus honey, and all sorts of honeys. Uh, But a crucial part of the process was the development of an artificial bee stomach that mimics the biological processes in the bee. Now, you might be asking yourself, why would you even want to purchase honey that's artificially cured without using bees? Well, the artificial honey still has all the qualities of natural honey, like being antibacterial. But it will also have different vitamins, antioxidants, calcium, and other minerals added that are lacking in regular honey. And their best selling point is that their artificially produced honey will not contain any of the chemicals and toxins that can sometimes be found in bee honey when they go out to the plants in the field. With the bee population currently struggling, perhaps the best part of the process is that no bees will be harmed in the production of this honey. Uh, John, it does sound to me like this could be a honey of an idea from amazing Israel. Sweet. All right. No more bad puns, Charlie. Charlie, a lot of people have the idea that you get a radio program and you just create it and and you tell a radio station about it and boom, there you are on the air. The truth of the matter is there's enormous competition for space on this station. And uh, it's really important that listeners step up and speak up and let the management at this station know how this program, the land and the book impacts them. You think a, a letter to the station manager might be a good idea? Oh, it's a great idea. Letter or email. Uh, Again, a station uh, puts on a program that's broadcast over the air, but they really don't know, is that the best program? Are we using our resources the best way possible? And the only way they know is when somebody who's listening lets them know, yes, that program's meeting a need in my life. Uh, So that's one of the greatest things you could do for the land and the book is to let your local station know that you appreciate what they're doing by putting this program on. Thanks for encouraging them, and I know they'll appreciate hearing from you as well. Have you been to our website lately? It's thelandandthebook.org, thelandandthebook.org. You can always learn about our guests for the day, maybe past programs, future programs even, all there. A link to send us an email and a whole lot more. Again, that's thelandandthebook.org. Up next, a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Joel Rosenberg about enemies and allies on the land and the book. Do recent changes in the Middle East signal peace? You've read where one Arab country after another is signing historic peace, trade, investment, and tourism deals with Israel. But at the same time, off the radar for many of us, Russia, Iran, and Turkey are forming a highly dangerous alliance. Could they truly threaten the Western powers? Meanwhile, the U.S. is drawing down its military forces in the Mideast and focusing on matters closer to home. So where's it all heading? 
We'll talk about it with New York Times bestselling author Joel Rosenberg after this quick thought. So you've developed a friendship with a Jewish friend and you're wondering, is it a good idea to invite them to a Messianic congregation? Is that a huge turnoff or what? What would you say? Beth Tavlin is with the Olive Tree Congregation in suburban Chicago, a Messianic place. What's the answer to that question, Beth? Well, you kind of have to know the person that you're thinking of asking uh, and where they're at in their relationship with you. Do they trust you? Mm -hmm. But I would say go for it. And if they say no, don't give up. Give them time. Explain to them what a Messianic congregation is. Maybe attend one by yourself before you go and say, oh, I really think you would enjoy this and tell them why. You know, you and I are talking about a Messianic congregation, and there may be listeners saying, what is a Messianic congregation? Olive Tree Congregation is a congregation of believers in Jesus, much like your church. However, we worship the Lord in a Messianic fashion, using Hebrew and the Torah, which is in Hebrew, although we do always translate the Hebrew into English, so you know what we're saying. We have Messianic music, and um, it really identifies with the Jewishness of a person. If they have grown up Jewish, they would see many things that are familiar to them. Okay, so this familiarity can, in the end, do a great job of building a better bridge. Yes, and open doors and open eyes. And we do have many unsaved Jewish people who attend our congregation on a regular basis because they're interested in what we're teaching, not quite there yet, Yes, but learning. It takes a long time for a Jewish person to come to faith in Messiah because there are a lot of stigmas in their minds that they have to overcome. I think that's a conversation we need to have on a future broadcast. Beth Tavlin is with Olive Tree Congregation in suburban Chicago. Joel Rosenberg has sat down one-on-one with some of the most complex and controversial leaders in the world. Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, Egypt's President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi, Jordan's King Abdullah II, United Arab Emirates Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, Israeli President Reuven Rivlin. Out of these conversations and his own extraordinary research, he has crafted a must-read book for any student of the Middle East, Enemies and Allies. Joel Rosenberg makes his home in Jerusalem, where he also writes New York Times best-selling works of fiction. I confess to being a Joel junkie, and it's an honor to welcome you back to The Land and the Book. Thank you, John. It's great to be with you. Well, you describe the political landscape in Israel as sometimes encouraging and sometimes violent. Let's start on a positive note. What do you see that's encouraging? Well, certainly the Abraham Accords is the most dramatic and exciting, game-changing development in the Middle East in recent years. We had gone almost 25 years uh, since the last Arab-Israeli peace treaty. That was Jordan in 1994. Before that, you had to go back to 1979 between Egypt and Israel and the Camp David Accords. But at the end of 2020, we saw four Arab countries make peace and normalization deals slightly different from each other with Israel. And it was brokered by uh, President Trump and his Middle East uh, peace strategy team. This is fascinating. And in the book Enemies and Allies, I tell the story. It's the only book that has been written thus far that tells the story. And this is the inside story of how the Abraham Accords came to pass. I was actually sitting with the crown prince of the United Arab Emirates, uh, Mohammed bin Zayed, you mentioned him, MBZ, in 
2018, okay, November 2018, I had a group of evangelical leaders with me. I was leading this delegation because MBZ had asked me to bring the first evangelical delegation in history to come meet with the leaders of his country. And one of the things we talked about was things that we we wanted him to know as the leader of the United Arab Emirates about evangelicals and Israel. Number one, that we love Israel, we love the Jewish people, and you can't shake us from this because it's theological, it's not political, right? So we are not going to be swayed by any wind of, of politics at any given moment. Number two, that we love Israel deeply and unconditionally, but that doesn't mean we hate the Palestinians or Muslims or Arabs. Sure. It's not a zero-sum game. We right. love both because Jesus commanded us to. And three, we're commanded to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And so we're praying, well, who will be the next Arab leader to make peace with Israel? It hasn't happened in a quarter of a century. And will that Arab leader be willing to make peace with Israel, even if the Palestinian leadership is not? And MBZ stunned us, John. He, he shocked us by saying, I'm ready, Joel. I'm ready to make peace. And that opened up a quite a fascinating conversation. It was off the record at the time, but almost exactly two years later, MBZ became the first Arab leader to agree to the Abraham Accords brokered by President Trump. And that set into motion Bahrain and Morocco and Sudan and even a non-Arab country, Kosovo, to make peace with Israel. And I tell these stories uh, firsthand in Enemies and Allies. Given that this is sort of a behind-the-scenes account, what else do you think uh, might surprise us, uh, good or bad, in the conversations that led up to these accords? I sat in the Oval Office and I talked to President Trump and I met with his peacemaking team. And one of the stories I tell is how many people in Washington, what I call the peace industry, said that there was absolutely no way that the Trump team could make peace, like th that their strategy was completely wrong. They were probably going to make the situation worse by moving the U.S. embassy yeah. to Jerusalem. That was going to cause the region to blow up by ripping up the, the Iran nuclear deal that was going to cause the region to blow up and so on and so forth. And I quote them uh, directly in Enemies and Allies. And I'm not trying to be a partisan. I actually mm -hmm. told President Trump in the Oval Office during these conversations that I had been a never-Trumper during the 2016 campaign. Now, John, I don't know how often you think people use that term in Mr. Trump's presence, especially in the Oval <laughs> Office, but judging from the look in his eye, I don't think it's that often. <laughs> but I said to the president, everybody says you can't do it, but you're doing it. It's pretty striking. It's pretty dramatic yeah. um, that you who have no foreign policy experience, no national security experience, never served in government, and yet you are creating one peace deal after another. You're, you're advancing U.S.-Israel relations. The point is, I think Christians have been praying for decades for the peace of Jerusalem, but sometimes we think, well, it's never going to really happen. And, uh, and when it happens, then we're kind of cynical. Oh, well, yeah. I was pro-Trump or I was against Trump. I, uh, you know. And uh, I think it's something to rejoice about. Now, I'm not saying it's the peace that's going to end all peace. Only Christ is going to bring that right, peace right. Uh, when, when he comes. But, but we are supposed to be praying for peace. And when God says yes, we should rejoice. New York Times bestselling author Joel Rosenberg is based in Jerusalem. He joins us today on The Land and the Book for a frank conversation about enemies and allies. Any observations about President Trump and in his interest or support for Israel that jumps out at you as you review your, your time with him in, in the Oval Office? 
basically Trump came into power and, and looked at the what the peace industry, the all the professionals, all the elites, all the establishment that you know, all all these former ambassadors and secretaries of state that had been saying they knew how to make peace, but they never had. And Trump said, well, so let's look at what they did. Let's do the opposite. And, you know, everybody said, you can't move the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem. That'll blow up the region. You can't get tough with the Iranian regime. You can't recognize that Israel has sovereignty over the Golan Heights. This will destroy everything. You can't make your first trip into the Middle East to Saudi Arabia. All these different things. And yet that's exactly what Trump did. And he got results. I think that he actually deserved the the Nobel Peace Prize. But the point is not that I'm not saying this as a partisan. Right. I'm saying... You know, the first the first president to make peace between Israel and, and the Arabs was a Democrat, Jimmy Carter. The second was Bill Clinton, a Democrat, uh, helping broker a peace treaty between Jordan and Israel. And now Trump comes along and negotiates four more. So it's a very bipartisan issue. But it's important, I think, for Christians to, to go into the story. So many Christians over the last two years have been so focused on COVID and race riots and bitter political elections, understandably, that they've been focused inside the country and haven't been watching the sweeping tectonic changes going on in the Middle East, both for evil and for good. And so Enemies and Allies is the book that allows people to go, all right, I need to catch up on the dynamic, what's going on. And it's the only book that really takes you into the palaces, into the Oval Office, and lets you meet with these leaders and hear what they really think and love them or hate them agree with them or disagree with them, at least you're going to hear them directly. That's Joel Rosenberg, who's written Enemies and Allies. All right, let's pretend that it's me in the Oval Office. Joel, I'm president. Uh, We're having a frank discussion, you and I. And I ask you bluntly, Joel, what is the biggest threat to America from the Middle East right now? The Iranian regime. The fact that Iran's supreme leader is following an apocalyptic Islamist agenda, meaning he doesn't want to just use a little bit of violence to achieve his political and religious objectives, kick America out, get rid of Israel. He, the supreme leader of Iran, wants to commit genocide. He wants to wipe Israel off the map because in his view, it's the little Satan because it's the epicenter of Judaism. And the supreme leader of Iran wants to wipe out the United States because in his view, it's the epicenter of Christendom, and thus it is the great Satan. And what's so dangerous is if our Washington leaders don't understand that climate change may be important, but it's not the most existential threat to the United States or our allies. Iran getting nuclear weapons is an existential threat, and the Iranian regime not only wants to commit a second Holocaust by destroying Israel— it wants to commit a nuclear 9-11. How should Christians live in light of the somewhat unsettling realities of a very unsettled Middle East? I mean, we can't bring peace or force peace, and praying for peace sometimes feels uh, futile, even frustrating. You know, kind of a how then shall we live, I think, is, is the question. Sure. Well, I encourage people to think of four words. It's a strategy that has four parts. Learn, pray, give, and go. So Enemies and Allies is a resource to help you learn what's going on. I've launched two websites in the Middle East. One is called All Israel News, and the other is called All Arab News. We provide daily coverage, exclusive interviews, original reporting, and we provide links to 
really good, solid coverage from other uh, secular and Christian media about what's going on in Israel, Iran, and the region so that people are educated. They understand what's happening, and we provide a lot of analysis, and people can sign up for our free email newsletters where the uh, the headlines come right to their phone or the desktop or the laptop. So that's learning. But that the more we learn, the more we know how to pray. Pray for the church in the region, pray for the leaders of the region, pray for our own leaders as they interact with the region and so forth, and then give. Uh, we started a ministry, my wife and I, 15 years ago called the Joshua Fund. Over the last 15 years, this group has raised and invested more than $80 million to strengthen the church in Israel and in the Arab world, and to help them fulfill the Great Commission and advance the gospel, make disciples, plant churches. That's a way. It's 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 not the only way, but it's a way for people to say, yeah, I want to help, but I don't know where my $25 a month or $50 a month or whatever, I wouldn't know how to specifically invest it. So that's why we try to be a trusted resource. So as people learn, pray, they can give uh, to advance the kingdom of Christ, and then go. At, you know, at some point with this program or with uh, your local church, uh, go and, and step into Israel. Step into the story and let let the, the black and white story turn into technicolor. Let the, the little movie of, your, of, of, the, of the gospel life and the, and the life of Jesus and the apostles and the prophets, you know, that you're sort of, quote, watching on your phone, unquote, let it become IMAX. Let's step into the story Learn, pray, give, and go, because I guarantee you, you come to Israel, you will see things much clearer, and then you'll go home and know how to explain to people why they should be learning, praying, giving, and going, so that we see Jesus face-to-face one day, and we've been part of fulfilling the Great Commission among Jews and Muslims, who admittedly are the, the last frontiers of the gospel. That's always a mind-stretching conversation when Joel Rosenberg is in the house. I want to encourage you to check out his book, Enemies and Allies, a link at our website, as well as a link to his website when you visit thelandandthebook.org. Hey, Charlie Dyer's back for our next segment, a look at Bible questions next, here on The Land and the Book. can't read the Bible and not have questions, right? The question is, what do you do with those questions? Well, that's what this next segment is about here on The Land and the Book. Welcome back to segment three. I'm John Geiger with our host, Charlie Dyer, and his Bible open, ready to address some of these questions. Charlie, uh, tell us about the nature of the questions we're going to tackle today. They're not easy. Oh, they're not. In fact, we had a number of people ask some very complex, uh, detailed questions on some very deep topics. But uh, we try and take all of them. We try and answer every question that comes in. So uh, hang on, fasten your seatbelt. Uh, these are these are some tough ones. Right. So bear with us because some of the questions are a bit involved and it's going to take some time to answer them, but it's well worth listening to every one of these. Starting with Gene's question, he says, I've got a question that I've wondered about for a long time. The scripture reference I refer to is Daniel 10 verse 13. However, the prince of the kingdom of Persia resisted me for 21 days. But behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I had been detained there with the king of Persia. My question is generated by the events of this section of Scripture and others. The question, how do angels fight or battle? They're not like humans with a physical body that tires, bleeds, and dies. So how do they overpower and win the battle? Yeah, and the Bible provides just so few details when it comes to how they fight and, uh, in fact, anything related to the realm of angels and demons. But I do see three small clues that might help, though 
uh, we can't press them too far. The first is there in Daniel. Uh, Daniel talked about the prince of the Persian kingdom. And in that same context, he mentions the prince of Persia. Uh, but he also mentions the prince of Greece and Michael, one of the chief princes. And then two chapters later, he again mentions Michael and says, he's the prince who protects your people. Now, that suggests to me one function of these angels and demons is to influence nations and people. Uh, in Daniel 8, uh, Daniel was told the Babylon would be followed by the kingdoms of Medo-Persia and then Greece. So it seems like the princes of Persia and Greece that were mentioned there in chapter 10 are the demons working to influence those governments. And Michael was the angel who was specifically told to guard and protect the Jewish people. Now, we're not told how they clash in battle, but it would appear that they do so by trying to influence human governments to support or oppose God's plan and God's people. Now, the second clue, I have to go to the New Testament. In Ephesians 6, Paul tells the Ephesians that their ultimate struggle, he says, isn't against flesh and blood, human forces, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And even in our day-to-day struggles here on earth, Paul's reminding the Ephesians and us that the real battle is spiritual and it goes beyond what we can see and feel into these spiritual forces in heaven. And then he goes on to describe the armor of God that we have available for doing battle against such forces. And so I think if we read that armor of God, it helps us understand the kind of struggles that are taking place. And the final clue I see, well, it's in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 12, John describes a still future battle that takes place in heaven. He talks about a war between Michael and his angels and the dragon or Satan and his angels, but they weren't strong enough. They lose their place in heaven. Uh, This suggests that there is genuine conflict taking place, but someday Satan and his forces are going to lose access to those realms and be confined to earth. Now, someday, this is the good news, someday we're going to know more about this. We'll, We'll understand when we get to heaven, but until then, we just need to walk by faith and make sure we're wearing God's armor. Gordon asks, every time the infant salvation comes up, why do most Bible scholars cling to the universalist view that they must go to heaven in favor of the much more biblically solid millennial theory? Scholars have tried to defend baby universalism, that all babies go to heaven, using emotional arguments. But the fact remains that salvation must come through grace and faith, something a baby can't possess. The possibility of the babies being presented the gospel in the millennium, however, has much more solid biblical support. To any Bible scholar who might disagree, I ask, where is your scriptural warrant to support any type of universalism at all, much less in favor of biblically solid millennial theory? Yeah, and most people are listening going, what? Uh, Well, here's the bottom line. I I just can't accept the theory that uh, you're presenting there, and and here's why. Uh, You referred to the biblically solid millennial theory, but in reality— There are no passages that say babies who died physically will be raised physically at the beginning of the millennial kingdom and then be given a second chance uh, to decide whether they're going to go to heaven or hell. Uh, In fact, that theory seems to contradict the principle of Hebrews 9.27, which says uh, we're destined once to die and after that to face judgment. In, In other words, physical death closes the door to any further opportunity to respond spiritually. One's eternal destiny, it seems to say there, is fixed at that point. Now, the reality is the Bible doesn't specifically speak to the issue of what happens to babies or even the preborn or young infants who die and who are unable to uh, make a decision to accept or reject Christ because they just weren't uh, old enough to even do that. And I think we have to start by looking at the character of God for answers. God's righteous and he's just and he's loving. And Jesus's death on the cross was sufficient to pay for the sin and sin nature of all. 
I believe God's love will extend to those who had absolutely no opportunity to exercise faith in any capacity whatsoever before dying. Now, that's not the same. And listen carefully. That's not the same as saying someone who lives elsewhere in the world who might not have heard the gospel will automatically go to heaven. Uh, We know the heavens declare the glory of God. And we also know without faith, it's impossible to please God because you have to believe he exists and he rewards those who seek him. That's That last part's Hebrews 11. But I believe God will extend his grace to those who die before even having an opportunity to recognize the reality of God through nature or to understand or respond to the fact that he does exist. That would be the unborn young children, infants, uh, before they reach that age where they can understand and even begin to respond. Now that seems to align with what I see the Bible teaching about God, but I just can't find any support for believing that God's going to bring babies back to life during the millennium solely to give them a a second shot, if you will, at, at heaven or hell. It's questions and answers here on The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. Alan says, I was disappointed to hear you equate anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism. They're just not the same thing. Saying that they are the same is rather political and partisan of you. Apparently, those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse, wasn't intended to last forever. Nor does the word say it is meant to last forever. I've read the percentage of Christians among the Palestinians is higher than the percentage of Christians among Israeli Jews. Though, of course, this is not our basis for determining who is entitled to dwell in the land. Casually or intentionally equating anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism is more of a slap in the face of the thinking Christian than you may think. No guilt trips, please. Well, I'll say, I'm sorry you disagree with my equation of anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism, but anti-Zionism isn't just criticism of Israel or Israeli policy. That's not what I'm talking about there. Anti-Zionism is the belief that the state of Israel shouldn't exist at all, and I believe that anti-Semitism lies at the heart of that belief. Now, in terms of seeing the blessings and cursings of Genesis 12:3, as you said, not lasting forever, I got to go to Romans 11. Uh, In fact, Romans 9 to 11 is the only passage in the New Testament that specifically addresses the relationship between Israel and the church. And while it's true there that uh, being connected to God's source of blessing right now, Paul says that the branch of Israel has been broken off and the church has been grafted in, but he very quickly adds two additional points that are crucial. Uh, First, He says, uh, believing Gentiles need to be sure not to be arrogant toward the branches. We need to be careful we don't look at ourselves as being the chosen and Israel's gone. In essence, uh, latent anti-Semitism. And second, he makes it clear that God is not finished with Israel as his chosen people. He says, Israel's experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. Now, how can he be certain that God has a future for Israel? He says in the very next verse, because God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Uh, He's referring back to what he just described in the previous verse. Uh, As far as elections concerned, they're loved on account of the patriarchs. In other words, uh, God made promises to Abraham, to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Paul says those gifts and promises are irrevocable. So Genesis 12, 3, as part of God's initial promise to Abraham, does indeed last forever. Uh, In terms of the Palestinian Christians, I know a lot of them. Uh, The best numbers I've heard are there could be about 50,000 Palestinians who would classify themselves as being born again. Now, there are many more traditional Palestinian Christians, but I'm referring here to those who claim to have that personal relationship with Christ. And there are about 50,000 Messianic Jewish believers in Israel. 
those two groups try to reach across to each other to display the bond of love in Christ and let both Arabs and Jews know that the only real hope for peace in the Middle East will come through the Prince of Peace. Now, my support for Israel's right to exist as a nation doesn't come at the expense of my love for either Israeli or Palestinian believers. But at the end of the day, I've got to say that uh, those who deny Israel's right to exist as a nation are going against what God's promised. And at the heart of it, it is anti-Semitism. Well, these are very, very deep questions. And Charlie, you've done a great job kind of untying some of the knots. Thank you for opening our eyes here, helping us understand these things from a biblical perspective. Your question, by the way, is always welcome. You can email it to thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Have you shared our podcast with your friends yet? It's a great way to let anybody anywhere listen to the program. Uh, Head to our website for the link, thelandandthebook.org. Charlie's devotional, next. And welcome back to The Land and the Book. This segment number four, Dr. Charlie Dyer's devotional. I'm looking forward to his view of Isaiah chapter five, our theme, Vines. We'll get to that in just a moment. First though, let's listen to this Holy Land experience, a testimony from somebody who's traveled to the Holy Land and now shares this perspective with you and me. I'm Jack from Coral Gables. My Holy Land experience was multifaceted, but the one thing that strikes me again today is the proximity of Israel's enemies in this very small part of the world, that Syria is right on top of Israel. And so that underscores the great danger there and the courage of the people of Israel to live there and to put up with that danger on an hourly basis. Hello, my name is Isman Garcia, and my Holy Land experience, as there's many experiences that I had in Israel, and seeing the Bible come to life was definitely when I was at the in the boat trip to the Sea of Galilee, and just sitting there, and as the boat was playing actually Christian music and worshiping God, and just to think that Jesus walked over those waters and walking through the storm and seeing the calmness of it, and just knowing that Jesus was there and did all these miracles, uh, and, the, and the experience of worship was just overwhelming. That tears just came out of my eyes, and saying, "Wow, this is the." place where my Savior walked, and He's walking with me now. So that was my Holy Land experience. So if you've traveled to the Holy Land, my guess is the composite scene that uh, you see in your mind when you think of that nation isn't a bunch of green vines, maybe some rocks, maybe a dusty hillside, certainly not vines. But Charlie Dyer has some thoughts that might just alter your thinking in his devotional. Charlie, what you got? In Deuteronomy 8, Moses described the promised land as a land of wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey. And today, we're walking to a hillside near Jerusalem to visit a vineyard, the third crop on Moses' list of seven. The limestone hills of Judah form natural terraces. And from the earliest times, farmers cleared the rocks from these natural beds of limestone, piled them along the edge of the terrace to retain the soil, hold in the rainfall that comes from the winter, and serve as a protective barrier. Many crops were grown on these fertile plots of land, but the cultivation of grapes took special care and preparation. When we think of a vineyard, we envision long rows of trellised vines, the the branches extending out on wire stretched between supporting poles. And some grapes in Israel were grown on trellises or arbors to provide a shaded canopy from the blazing sun of summer. 
The Bible even describes times of peace, safety, and prosperity as days when someone could relax under his vine and under his fig tree, picturing this more decorative use of the vines for shade. But while vines growing along trellises are beautiful, that's not how grapes were grown in ancient Israel's vineyards. In Bible times, the central vine grew along the ground, with its end propped up on a rock to elevate it slightly. All the branches along the vine were trimmed away except those at the very end. This is where the grapes were allowed to form and mature. In addition to clearing the field and building a wall along the edge of the terrace, the farmer would also build a watchtower in the field to guard against theft. As the grapes ripened, two- and four-legged thieves eyed the sweet grapes hungrily. The watchtower allowed the farmer to see the far corners of the field where a thief might try to climb over the wall and into the vineyard. The farmers also had to dig a wine press. The topography of the ground would dictate the final design, but the general layout remained the same. He'd first cut a shallow depression into the bedrock on a slight slope. Next to this depression, on its downhill side, he carved out a deeper vat. A narrow channel connected these two sections. And at harvest time, the workers placed the ripened grapes into that large, shallow depression. After removing their sandals so as not to crush the seeds, they would then tread on the grapes. They didn't want to crush the seeds because the seeds contained tannin, which could make the wine bitter. The grape juice, along with some seeds and bits of grape skin, would flow through the channel into the collection vat. The farmer would let this mixture settle to separate the seeds and the pulp from the liquid. He would then carefully scoop out the juice, strain it, and pour it into jars or leather wineskins to allow it to ferment. Once the fermentation process was complete, the liquid would be strained again and poured into clay jars that would be sealed and stored in a cool place. Vineyards played a major role in Israel's history and in the Bible's imagery. We remember Naboth's vineyard at the time of Ahab and Jezebel, and we know the beautiful imagery Jesus used with his disciples. I am the vine, and you are the branches. We also have the dramatic imagery of Jesus returning as the victorious warrior who treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. But today, we're traveling into the hills just to the southwest of Jerusalem with Isaiah the prophet. He's taking us to a vineyard nestled on a hillside in the land of Judah. The vineyard's owner isn't important. This particular vineyard looks like thousands of others scattered throughout Judah. But the message Isaiah is about to deliver is absolutely crucial, and it comes straight out of this vine-covered hillside. In Isaiah 5, he calls out to everyone who's followed him from Jerusalem, let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. The song of the vineyard. We've not heard this song before, but it soon becomes obvious why Isaiah has chosen this spot to sing it. The song focuses on a vineyard on a fertile hillside. The hardworking farmer removed its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. We understand the importance of good soil, good preparation, and the selection of good stock. So far, the farmer is doing everything necessary to ensure the success of this new vineyard. Isaiah continues his song. The farmer also built a tower in the field to watch over it, and he hewed out a wine vat to prepare for the coming harvest. He provided good protection, and he had good expectations for this vineyard. But just when we anticipate a happy ending, Isaiah adds an unexpected twist. Instead of producing a crop of good grapes, the new vineyard produces worthless ones. The focus seems to be on the lack of quality of the grapes themselves. It's not that they were damaged by insects or disease or drought. The preparations and the conditions had been just right. 
the care and nurture of the vineyard exhibited by the owner had been exemplary. So what went wrong? The problem was ultimately with the vines themselves. Though they had come from the choicest stock, they turned out to be worthless vines that produced worthless fruit. And the results were catastrophic. As Isaiah's song continues, the farmer vows to tear down the field's protective wall and to cease caring for the land. Ultimately, the vineyard will be ruined, he says, because the vine dresser will no longer look after it. Then Isaiah explains the real meaning of this song of the vineyard. The vine dresser was God himself, and the vineyard was the house of Israel. And the good grapes God wanted his people to produce were justice and righteousness. God had blessed the people of Israel, but now he threatened to withdraw his hand of blessing because they refused to follow his standards of right and wrong. The word for justice is mishpat, which refers to acting fairly and impartially. And the word for righteousness is tzedakah, which focuses on proper standards of right and wrong. In one sense, mishpat looks at how we act toward others and tzedakah at how we act toward God. God wants his people to act fairly and rightly. Israel failed on both counts, and Isaiah announced God's coming judgment as a result. But as we stand here staring at the vineyard, a question rises in our minds. What does this story have to do with us? Let's be very clear that neither the church nor the United States is Israel. But I believe there's a principle from the song of the vineyard that we can't ignore. God's character hasn't changed and neither have his expectations for those who claim to be his followers. The voices around us shout out and tell us to demand our rights, but far less is said about owning up to our responsibilities. In contrast, Jesus said, From everyone who has been given much shall much be required. In a very real sense, those of us living in the West who are followers of Christ have been given much from God, materially and spiritually. We might not always feel wealthy, but we are in comparison to most of the world. Look around your house at all the appliances and electronics, the gadgets, gizmos, and everything else you own that didn't even exist a century ago. And our wealth extends beyond our material possessions. Spiritually, we have freedom to worship without fear of persecution, and we have easy access to God's Word. But having given us much, God also requires much from us. And what specifically does He want? He wants us to walk in a righteous way before him and to treat those around us fairly and justly. Simply put, that's the harvest God wants each of us to produce in the vineyard of our life. So what's the quality of the fruit you're producing in your life today? That's an important question. What is the quality of the fruit that you and I are producing in our lives today? Charlie, thanks for bringing us that devotional. And as you listen, if you'd like to hear it again, Why not uh, head to our website, thelandandthebook.org, where you can stream the program again or download it as a podcast, maybe share it with a friend. Sure appreciate it if you would. We have no advertising budget here, so it's word of mouth. Folks like you and me saying, hey, I appreciate the program, the way it connects me with the land and the book. So share us with a friend. Thanks for that favor. Next week, we're back, Lord willing, with a brand new slate of guests, more questions from you, and lots more from Charlie Dyer, here on The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.